The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between, between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. Hello, everyone. It's me and Kuba back again. Me, Stefan Bertram Lee, and Deep State Kuba are joining you to give another update on Sublation Media um, about the war in Ukraine. Um, our update has, as it turned out, had absolutely impeccable timing. Um, I first of all started to think of this video in response to the recent Kharkov offensive by Ukraine, but as we were making plans to, to make a time for this video, some very more important events have, have happened. Yesterday, on the 20th of September 2022, uh, it was announced that referendums would be conducted in four regions of Ukraine, which are at least partially occupied by Russian forces. Um, this is being the DNR, LNR, uh, the Kherson Oblast, uh, that being the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, um, Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia. Uh, these were regions that, you know, if, if you'd been told in February that kind of in September, Russia was about to annex these four regions, you would have anticipated that what had developed was Russia had successfully captured these eight regions, had generally won a victory over Ukraine in short order, and then in a process, after a process of integration, had moved to annex these areas. But this is, isn't what happened. Rather, after a pretty extensive reversal in the past couple of weeks, um, these moves to referendums are, in essence, kind of a, a move to extend the war on the Russian side out of a failure, a failure of their professional forces to fulfill their goals. And now on the 21st of September, the day that we're recording and perhaps the day this video will go up, um, President Putin and the Defense Minister Shogo have announced a partial mobilization in Russia um, something that Russia had up until this point heavily resisted, um, something that they've tried, you know, absolutely desperately to avoid in order to try not to disrupt normal life in Russia and to treat the kind of operation in Ukraine as like a little police action as America does at war, does with its wars. Um, but this has failed. And so from today, mobilization uh, in Russia will begin. And I think this kind of perfectly bookends the special operation and kind of is perfect for this video in the sense that it allows us to speak about what has happened because the war is now entering a new stage. Uh, no An actual is, war, for instance. Yeah. Putin said the word war this morning in his address, something that he's scrupulously avoided. Well, he said it in Russian. <laughs> um something he scrupulously avoided beforehand, speaking only of the special military operation. Um, and so I think it's a good time for us to kind of assess the, military the special military operation uh, and its failures. And also then we can go on and examine what it means that this conflict is being formally upgraded into uh, a full-on uh, national war on the Russian side that has not just strategic implications, but also uh, legal, social, and political ramifications as well. Yeah. So the approximate cause of the events in the past few days has been um, the withdrawal, the second major with Russian withdrawal. In early April, there was a major Russian withdrawal from the north of the country where they seemingly readjusted from trying to occupy all of Ukraine to try and occupying kind of the east on the other side of the Dnieper. Um, but then last week, well, actually a couple weeks now, I guess, um, in Kharkov Oblast, 
um, Ukrainian mechanized forces punched a line, uh, punched a hole through the, the Russian defense lines, which were manned only by Russian National Guard and mobilized Ukrainian nationals from the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic. And unlike in other kind of um, battles in this war, didn't stop. They kind of just kept driving. And then they found that basically these Russian defense lines basically didn't exist. Um, and this punched a, a big enough hole in the Russian lines that they were forced basically to withdraw from nearly all of the all of Kharkov Oblast, which before they controlled a significant part of, um, which not only put pressure on them there, but has put pressure on their themselves in uh, northern Donetsk, which is a place that was kind of absolutely essential to the special military operation uh, being a success. Um, and this has kind of panicked Russia so much that they're moving to change this from a special military operation into a war. The, uh, I, I'd only point out that um, this escalation towards full mobilization and the recognition that the conflict has become a major national war for Russia, not one of these Syria um, or uh, American style Iraq or, or Libyan overseas interventions where the civilian population doesn't really observe the damage or the losses and you have civilian life continue on as usual, which, you know, the greatest examples, of course, the 2003 Iraq war, when uh, the president, commander in chief of uh, American forces, just advised civilians to go out shopping if they wanted to support the war effort. Uh, yeah, I think Russian, out, Russian state has said similar things since February. Yeah, exactly. And, but it turns out that that wasn't getting the job done. Um, so I guess we blame you, um, Martha Ivanovna, you did not purchase enough, um, <laughs> domestically made textiles. Not enough potatoes. Yeah, exactly. If you had just stayed in the farmer's market a little longer, you know, you could have bought some forest harvested mushrooms and it would have made quota, but no, instead. We have to do a partial mobilization, and this has turned into a war. So thanks a lot, Russian consumer. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and I think uh, kind of a couple of months ago, uh, a Russia optimist or someone who was just kind of optimistic for the war ending might have thought that Russia would be able to secure the last major urban area in, in Donetsk, which is Slovansk, uh, which is also a place of great kind of psychological significance because it was a start the home of the pro-Russian rebellion in 2014. Um, and then over winter, that the kind of Russia would secure these areas, and then over winter would be able to pressure Europe and Ukraine uh, into peace. But instead, what's happening is now that kind of Russia will be the ones that are anxiously waiting uh, for the winter weather to begin, rather than kind of trying to anxiously uh, push this back. To remind what kind of the explicit objectives of the Russian uh, operation were when it began. Uh, they were denazification, which is something, you know, was, if we take it the most explicit way, was the elimination of um, the fascist military units in the Ukrainian military structure. Um, obviously, the Russian military successfully destroyed the Azov Battalion in Mariupol, the, kind of the Azov Battalion, uh, but subsequently if that Azov many more- 2.0. Let's call it. Yeah, many more Azov battalions have been founded, and these are under the direct control of the kind of the founder of the Azov movement, who is a real, real, real fucking neo-Nazi, while the at least partially depoliticized leadership of the Azov battalion, the military leadership, are in Russian prisons or dead. Um, and there's also been a large expanse of right sector uh, fascist military units. So this is an objective which obviously to this point ha has failed. Um, demilitarization was the other objective in terms of kind of destroying Ukrainian military forces. This again has obviously failed. Russia, uh, Ukraine is much more heavily armed than it was 
six months ago. Uh, and the final objective was the securing of the Donetsk People's Republic, the Luhansk People's Republic. Uh, the latter <laughs> seemed like it was basically achieved while the securing of the Donetsk People's Republic required taking this kind of one last city and then pushing the Ukrainians out of their defense lines around Donetsk city. Um, but progress since 1st of August in, in Donetsk has basically been zero. And then a few days ago, uh, the Ukrainians managed to take one village in Luhansk. Um, so now Russia doesn't have total control of any of these oblasts. Um, uh, neither the ones in Donbass nor the um, southern oblasts where uh, uh, annexation referenda are being held. Uh, Kherson and Zaporozhye. I, I, I spent yesterday studying how to pronounce that region and then didn't really still get it. The it, Apparently it goes back to a Cossack host. Yeah, um, oh, definitely, definitely. That. Sounds very Turkic. But also, like, the this is one of the few situations where the Ukrainian and the Russian, like the Ukrainian formal proper, proper uh, pronunciation, the Russian one really uh, vary. And the Ukrainian, like, official one, which is the one which is on Wikipedia, it's brutal. Uh, but regardless, yeah, you're right. Um, Zaporizhia, uh, the Russian control about 75% of Zaporizhia, but only maybe probably less than half the population because they don't control the city, which gives the, the province its name. And in Kherson Oblast, they do control nearly all of it, um, but it's been under heavy Ukrainian assault. And then uh, you would assume that even if they were trying their best, it would be very hard for them to hold a kind of legitimate referendum there because presumably the place would constantly be under Ukrainian shelling. Um, so... I think rather than kind of arguing for why the special operation failed, I think that's generally kind of our starting point. Um, and so if you don't have any uh, more comments on this, we can start kind of from February 24th and talk about how the war was kind of like <laughs> doomed from the start, basically. Well, on that note, I came across a very interesting piece um, on a blog called Policy Tensor which um, it covers a lot of financial matters. The um, author is a weird polymath um, that um, Indians studied in America, I think went back to India, um, has degrees in uh, an implausible range of fields. And as far as I can tell, has no real Eastern European or, or Slavic uh, experience, but has a very disciplined way of asking questions. And um, one of the, um, one place to start in recounting this um, the, the fateful adventure of the Russian special military operation is to ask uh, why it happened when it happened. And mm -hmm. um, now there's a, a lot of moral consequences that um, are drawn out from the fact that this conflict is a Russian war of choice. The uh, first official move to create interstate conflict um, outside of the, these contained uh, frozen uh, fronts in the Ukrainian civil war in Donetsk was um, Russian moves across an international frontier, quite dramatically a th armored thrust towards Kiev, as well as operations um, across the country. And the um, that's led many observers to um, blame Russia for the conflict. And I'm putting that question aside entirely um, because the one that I want to address is, well, if it is a Russian war of choice, 
they could have began it six months earlier. They could have waited another six months. Why did it's it occur a very when bad it occurred? In, in a very in a very short season, uh, Russian operations can occur and quite successfully in winter under frozen conditions. But then you hit the thaw. If you don't reach your objectives before the ground turns muddy, all of a sudden you're bogged down in your positions and a lot of heavy equipment becomes uh, stranded and useless. And once the initial offensive failed, that was a position that Russian units would inevitably fall into as the, the war progressed. And that had bad consequences on their uh, ability to continue to operate and their ability to defend themselves. So um, why did it happen um, when it happened? Well, the since Western media has the um, default explanation that Putin is a bad man and he wants to take territory Russian national aggrandizement and his own personal ambition. It is unexamined in the Western media. It's just something that Putin does. Um, the timing, maybe it had to do with, um, I don't know, the death of his second favorite dog, uh, third favorite mistress. Uh, He's dying of maybe. cancer. Exactly. He, that was planned on a lot about her in early days. I prefer to imagine that there's a child dying of cancer and the Russian equivalent of the Make-A-Wish Foundation got him a meeting with Putin and little uh, Oleg said, uh, Mr. President, please, if one thing you can do is invade Ukraine, make my heart so happy. Um, and, you know... Exactly. Crush the Azov Battalion. The, um, but um, the author and uh, policy tensor um, makes a convincing case that the um, particular timing came out of a kind of asymmetrical diplomatic um, escalation between Russia and the West over uh, the future of Ukraine and the extent to which um, Ukraine would be absorbed into Western military and security networks. Yeah. Now, we've made the case before, other people have made the case before, that um, the expansion of uh, NATO especially, but um, bilateral agreements as well, um, and other forms of uh, Western security assistance and um, coordination, anti-Russian coordination, specifically designed to um, isolate and limit and threaten um, Russian territory, that that had had a triggering effect on um, Putin in terms of hardening opposition to um, any kind of uh, pro-Western, anti-Russian local government in the near abroad, um, and that the in, uh, intensity of that opposition mounted as um, NATO and Western uh, alliances crept closer and closer towards uh, the uh, post-Soviet borders of Russia. Now, um, that's the big picture, but smaller picture, um, if we just look at the period of time uh, between uh, 2016 and now, on the American side, attitudes towards Russia hardened considerably after the 2016 election. Uh, Putin and uh, Obama had talked about a reset. 
and there was a possibility of some kind of understanding being reached by the great powers until the Maidan uprising, which for um, the Russian side represented uh, the crossing of a significant red line. Um, but even after um, Maidan and the Russian annexation of Crimea and Donetsk, Lugansk, uh, the push to war wasn't continuous. Um, on the American side, the Trump presidency de-emphasized brinksmanship with Russia. Uh, however, outside of the Republican administration and elements of the American right, the perception that Russia played a pivotal role in the 2016 election results through deliberate, calibrated meddling in American democratic politics, um, hardened attitudes inside the security apparatus and inside the Democratic Party um, against Putin's government and uh, against Russia. There's also the open question of the extent to which uh, the Biden family personally was implicated in um, Ukrainian political economy, uh, either through the politicization of Ukraine during the Trump period, where um, it became a uh, symbolic football uh, to be fought over by the Democrats and the Republicans, but also um, whatever um, connections that Hunter Biden might have had with uh, Borsima and other elements of um, the extraordinarily corrupt and opaque uh, Ukrainian economic elite. Now, um, what you'd expect to see would be moves um, after the Biden election in anticipation of a worsening um, worsening relationship with uh, between the two powers and greater American um, engagement in Ukraine against um, Russian proxies, um, against Russian um, economic interests, intensification of sanctions, other moves. And that's essentially what happened, that the period um, following the inauguration of Joe Biden Although things didn't proceed entirely evenly, the overall momentum was towards um, stricter and stricter controls on um, Russian engagement with the international economy and on um, moves towards the destabilization of um, Putin's government itself. Now, um, the one, um, one issue that is rarely discussed um, is that, um, oh, when exactly did the war start? February 24th. February 24th. Um, February 3rd. Um, a Russian um, oligarch, Viktor Medvedchuk, was uh, arrested and uh, his pro-Russian television network um, was shut down. Other moves also severed the informal Subarosa connections between Russia and Ukraine. Yeah, now, I was going to say because the 28 Ukrainian presidential election, while Zelensky wasn't in any way a pro-Russian guy, he was about as good as kind of the Russians could expect uh, a Ukrainian president to be following their, their actions in 2014 in terms of him being someone that was open, like was he was elected as a partial reputation of Maidan, someone that was meant to reconcile with Russia, was meant to find, uh, resolve the situation in, in the Donbass through peace. And he made various efforts to do that, including ordering Azov to and other nationalist battalions to 
kind of disengaged from the front lines, though these orders were largely ignored. Um, and he, but this kind of movement towards reconciliation, for whatever reason, was slowly ending through 2020, and he began to take a more hawkish attitude. Uh, exactly. And one issue that isn't um, frequently brought up is that there, during following the buildup of um, Russian forces along the border, there was um, at least one major pullback or reorientation of those forces, um, which nominally was associated with some kind of diplomatic um, uh, diplomatic talks uh, occurring kind of off camera. Um, and the um, Russia issued a very clear set of demands, maximalist demands, but very clearly articulated, very visible, um, falsifiable. So if the United States Ukraine and NATO wanted to prevent conflict, they knew where to start or at least what to start talking about. Uh, now, the moves by Russia um, mobilizing, uh, well, um, moving. <laughs> over 100,000, yeah, moving things to the border, um, issuing these very clear, stark demands um, the entire period, um, and we can go back to before 2020, we can go back to 2016, um, Russian intervention in Syria, uh, likewise, uh, all of these moves were meant to send a very clear signal that Russia was being serious in, um, defending its security interests and that it had legitimate claims which could not be dismissed. The American attitude has been to not take those claims or demands seriously. Now, that is puzzling and we could go into to why that happened, but I think that the proximate outbreak occurs precisely because there's a misreading of Russian moves um, as being purely symbolic, mainly for internal consumption, um, not this existential World War II nonsense that seems hopelessly outdated in Washington and Brussels. Um, but there was no way for Russia to signal that it was being serious other than what it was doing. So once the decision is made not to treat um, the threat of war, the threat of direct old timey military, um, a military offensive with all the destructive potential that went along with that as a serious Russian um, commitment, then the United States continued to play a brinksmanship for which the Ukrainians were unprepared. Um, now, it turns out that the Russians were also unprepared um, for what they found in Ukraine. Um, and I think that now we can pivot to discussing the actual um, order of events following the, the beginning of the special military operation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right there, that kind of, <laughs> everyone was kind of shouting, but not much was being heard. Um, and one thing that clearly wasn't being heard um, by Putin and by the people closest to him, probably because he was being directly misinformed by his intelligence services, was that if he sent, his, sent the Russian army into Ukraine, what he would find would be a war there. It wouldn't be what had happened before in 2014 in Crimea, Russia went into Crimea, faced no resistance, and not only, it wasn't just kind of military units surrendering, it was military units and security forces and police defecting to Russia. Um, obviously, in the Donbass, they found themselves in a much more difficult situation, but this was kind of relied, the, the expl explanation here was the people are with us, but we're fighting kind of these nationalist battalions, 
and that because we were unable to engage with our air force and so on and with most of our military units in Donbass, uh, this is why one hand tied right. behind our back. Yeah, <laughs> and they were really quite tied, maybe like one hand and one foot, you know. Um, and then, so it was anticipated that once Russia gathered what seemed kind of like an overwhelming force, they did kind of shock and awe on the first day. They would go into Ukraine and the Ukrainian army would mostly fall apart. They would get to Kiev, they would take Kiev, uh, they would dismember the government, <laughs> literally otherwise, um, and they would only then have to fight nationalist battalions and various kind of Ukrainian military units that aligned with these nationalist units. Uh, and Kiev, if you will. And this is kind of a good explanation for, you know, you saying like, why did they launch it on February 24th when the snow was about to melt in about two weeks? Because there wasn't really any anticipation that the most important military moves would be done in two weeks. And while there was still, there, I don't think there's an idea that, you know, three days or something, I don't think this is true, that the whole situation would be resolved in three days, that kind of the season wasn't vitally important because they wouldn't be fighting a large-scale conventional war. Um, this also explains... I think that... Uh, I think that that's um, exactly right. And a lot of um, military thinkers and strategists have learned, uh, have overgeneralized from the American wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and the particular dynamics of um, the collapse of brittle states in the Middle East to a concept of contemporary warfare that's supposed to be global in general. But I'd suggest one other, I'd like to propose one other idea, um, which is that it, all of these moves by Russia, these very obvious mistakes or suboptimal strategies, I think also speak to a greater appetite on the part of Putin as a leader and probably Russia as a society to live with a long drawn out conflict. That's something best avoided. And we can try to wrap this up quickly and cauterize it. But um, I think that it was less shock and horror in the Kremlin that, hey, this isn't happening in three days, and more uh, weary disappointment combined yeah, no, with, I like, I guess it's five years of war, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, you know, it was worth a try. Once this operation began, now thinking back past the eight, for the past eight years, my question is less, why did they do it, but why did they wait so long, you know? Um, and obviously, later in this episode, I'm going to suggest that I think if Russian forces had concentrated on kind of encircling the Donbass, they would have succeeded and been able to destroy the majority of the Ukrainian army and, and put the Ukrainian state in a very weakened position. But as you say, at some level, you know, the Russians are going to be like, well, we had to try it, you know, like maybe it would have worked. Yeah. And yeah, and like the difference is what another thousand Russian soldiers dead in war, right? That, you call that a disaster, I call that a bad weekend. Um, and um, I think that there's been a consistent failure on the part of Western analysts to uh, accept that Russian society is not anti-Putin, that he is not being blamed for the disaster, and that there is a willingness. Uh, it, it's funny, on the one hand, the statements of European elites that we have to do whatever it takes, we have to um, accept whatever conditions this winter brings. And remember, these are civilian populations that aren't involved in any fighting. No one's bombing Leeds. No one's um, shelling Leipzig. Um, but, you know, it's going to be cold. It's going to be expensive, but it's worth it. Um, Britain's spending 6.5% of its GDP 
on coping with the crisis. And it the, the level of um, political, economic, and diplomatic malpractice on the part of the West in this entire conflict is really staggering. Um, I mean, we spoke about it in the last video, but I think we all anticipated that, as with Putin, it wasn't he wasn't Putin alone thinking that the Russians would win. Like maybe we didn't think he'd win in three days, but we thought that after a couple of months, probably uh, Russia would get what they wanted in terms of territorial. But I definitely anticipated Western sanctions having a, a, a real significant effect on Russia. But it, it seems every week more and more that the opposite was true that we all massively overestimated and underestimated Ukrainian military forces and overestimated Russian military forces while underestimating the Russian ability to cope with sanctions while overestimating the ability of the West to impose them without being damaged itself. Precisely. And I, and I don't think that we were alone in that estimation. I think that's the, um, that was and that continues to be the faith and hope of the um, military diplomatic class, military diplomatic leadership on both sides of the Atlantic, that um, somehow these sanctions are going to work and um, somehow the advantageous financial position of Western economies in the global system must translate into both authority and a stronger real position than um, a basket case like Russia, um, the, which has an economy smaller than that of South Korea, for instance. And as someone who you know, grew up in the 90s and uh, went to college in the 2000s, the economist explanation of the world was completely hege hegemonic and it treated GDP figures like... Um, Premier League standings. That's what you have over there, isn't it? A Premier League. Yeah, no, league. I was thinking like, you know, points uh, in a video game. Like some kind of universal even objective. So, uh, not just a universal objective, but also as a marker of status and position. Um, somehow objective, right? That uh, if you're a um, 200,000 per year um, GDP per capita country, then that means you're five times as powerful as a 40,000 per year um, per capita GDP uh, country. And um, the, and in what we're seeing with Russia is that the very globalization, which was supposed to shore up that dominant position for advanced Western economies actually has created vulnerability and an opportunity for states like um, Russia that have economies much more balanced towards the production of commodities and basic industrial goods that then serve as inputs um, for uh, their trading partners, you know, upstream inputs, um, that those goods are actually much more valuable than the prices um, would suggest. And Russia has a very resilient export capacity in those crucial sectors. And it's not just, um, I mean, Russian, Russian energy. Some, patriots, some Russian patriots are getting quite frustrated that they're, set, they're still selling like uh, processed aluminium to the United States, which is then processed into war arms, which are then exported to Ukraine, but shows that, yeah, Russia hasn't really been broken out of this world economic system. It hasn't broken out of this world um, economic system. They're uh, putting aside sales directly to the U.S. or the West. Um, as long as Russian oil is getting out on the world market, whether it's um, China or India, um, they, they're still connected to international trading networks. The, um, ironically, without the price moves on, um, for oil and gas, which are largely the result of unmet Western demand, unmet European demand, um, Russia might be in a much more powerless 
um, economic position. But it turns out that the sort of semi-globalized nature of its economy and its position near the bottom of the, the hierarchy as a commodity producer and exporter is much more resilient than um, some of the upstream economies which depend on global markets shaped by commodity exporters in order uh, to feed everything that uh, sits on top, um, including uh, a consumer economy and including their own um, industrial and technological production. Yeah, don't don't be dependent on a commodity producer. You haven't successfully imperialized. Yeah, or um, you know, don't provoke um, security crises that could boil over into a freezing of international markets. The one of the most disappointing um, side effects of this conflict for me is the. Um, NATO membership application from Finland and Sweden. Which you know is still being I like small. I know, I know. The, the, the dark horse hero out of all of this may be Erdogan. Um, and I say that because uh, I like small, neutral countries. Um, they tend to have uh, humane politics. They tend to have uh, healthy skepticism towards uh, militarization, lower levels of um, military spending, and they can serve as vital diplomatic bridges um, in periods of great power animosity. And the extinction of the small European country, especially a Russian-facing small neutral European country, um, out of the Eurasian um, security and diplomatic system is a movement towards um, a more brittle and confrontational system of, uh, of power blocks. So maybe, you know, maybe Erdogan will uh, hardline this long enough for um, the Ukraine war to, to get settled and then um, couldn't then Sweden give up on it? Go back to being Finland, yeah. Instead of turning into um, Estonia awesome. too. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's yeah. um, important to also emphasize kind of the political decisions that Russia made, which led to its military forces not being maximized. It's you know this is one so, thing that kind of Western commentators wouldn't like to talk about, but. The Russian air campaign in the first days of the war, like their shock and awe was kind of them just flying planes around. They probably hit some targets, but I can't remember a single one. In the first days of the war, in the first month of the war at least, Russia didn't even target Ukrainian military bases and barracks because they wanted to kind of avoid mass death to the Ukrainian military. They didn't hit transport hubs for months, and they literally only started targeting electrical infrastructure after the embarrassment in Kharkov. All these places would have been targeted in a NATO air campaign. And the decision not to do this was obviously not based on, <laughs> it wasn't a gesture of goodwill, as the Russians said about Snake Island. Uh, but these places were not hit because Russia thought it was just changing the government of Ukraine. And obviously, if you're changing the government of Ukraine to one that's in favor of you, you don't want to blow up all their bridges and, and railway tracks and military bases and so on because they're going to be aligned with you. And so Russia started this. You war. want to keep that stuff for after the war. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> especially because it's all built by the Soviets. Like, neither side is building anything new. They, they really need to keep all the shit they still got. Um, so Russia attempted in the first days of the war, um, like a police action. They sent these massive armored columns in the north towards Kiev, where they all got stuck in the fucking mud. But in the south, like to take Kharkov on day three or four, they sent 50 Spencer guys in like light armored vehicles in, into Kharkov who got killed because they weren't engaged in, in a police action 
even if they thought they were, uh, they were engaged in military conflict with another nation state and the, the, the security forces of those nation states um, shot them all. And with, um, we talked a little about kind of an um, American Western unwillingness to take uh, Russian threats seriously and to deal with Russia seriously based on um, the security concerns that they were raising. Um, I think that the inverse um, is that um, while the Americans assumed their overall control of the international economic system and the position of hegemony that they enjoyed in 1996, they mentally continue to benchmark to that. And um, that leads to catastrophic miscalculations. Um, but the pattern is that you have a period of success. You have ideas that seem to be working and you stick with them long after the conditions that allowed them to succeed um, could be maintained. Uh, countries like people are victims of their own success much more than uh, captives of their own failure, uh, at least beyond the, the point where your failure actually puts material constraints on you. And I think the Russian success um, was the development of these concepts of hybrid warfare, of um, information campaigns, of using um, those techniques and piggybacking off of uh, media uh, to amplify your uh, propaganda, that these approaches uh, put into doctrine by uh, Russian strategic thinkers were much more effective than they actually are. Um, that you might get a Trump election in the United States with all of your posting. You might be able to, um, for instance, in 2014, use uh, disinformation and special forces to seize Crimea in a moment of uh, Ukrainian state uh, failure. But that's not going to translate into every conceivable scenario. And I think that the that Russian propaganda was much more effective on the Russian forces involved in the early days of the fighting than on the Ukrainian ones or on Ukrainian civilians or on right. I mean, um, the, the anyone joke is that everyone in the, the battlefield world that the Russian army was going to invade Ukraine apart from the Russian army. Exactly. And the um, Russian army in that first wave uh, operationally on the ground. And this is also another consequence of um, top heavy um, centralized uh, command system, which is like the US Army, but not like the Marine Corps, the expeditionary forces that uh, Americans use where um, field officers have extensive autonomy on how to meet objectives and are able to, to improvise and change the adaptive conditions um, without coordinating with the upper leadership. In this kind of large, old-fashioned offensive, there, uh, especially, Russia doesn't permit that kind of um, adaptation and improvisation by um, low-level officers, which means that if conditions are different than the ones you expected, which they will be, because you've been lied to through all the briefings, you don't even know why you're there. Um, you don't have the um, authority or the training uh, or the resources to adapt, to address those uh, changing conditions. And as a result, you had a lot of paralysis and stasis in what was supposed to be a very mobile and agile uh, Russian thrust towards Kiev. It felt too, with the deployment of paratroopers and the intense fighting uh, around the airfield in uh, around Kiev, 
one that starts with B. George, uh, you mean Homestall? Oh, was it? N yes, that's the one. Um, and um, that those were adaptations imposed from central command, from an outside headquarters, rather than ideas that um, the field officers participating in operation. Yeah, I mean, the, the main flexibility of the Russians seems to be kind of cancelling stuff and withdrawing. So, like, contra kind yes. of like uh, what you'd expect from like a strong man authoritarian state. They are very willing to cancel stuff and they are very willing to withdraw, but on the other side, don't seem to be particularly effective in adapting. Yeah, the and if you think about it, this is not. Uh, a recent phenomenon. The uh, Russian doctrines of things like defense and depth, and maybe we should get to, um, why don't we talk about the withdrawals in the context of first the move out of Kiev and the redeployment towards Donbass, and then the failed uh, Kharkiv uh, offensive, or, or the successful Ukrainian Kharkiv counteroffensive. Yeah, so kind of after, as, as Kuba mentioned, on the first day of the war, uh, the VDV, the Russian paratroopers, tried to make uh, an air bridge in Homostal, where first um, air, airborne forces would land at Homostal airport, and then they would secure the area, and then two mechanized brigades would come in on planes um, and basically then capture Kiev on, Kiev on day one or maybe day two. Um, this failed. They weren't able to secure enough of the ground. This air bridge was cancelled, and already at that point, kind of, the Russian plan was way off whack. And so instead, these VDV uh, battalions were just sent in after a tank army into this kind of northern Chernobyl area and on the other side of the river, which had very bad terrain, very bad infrastructure, and were told to basically drive at Kiev. This failed. They faced resistance. They got stuck. Elsewhere in these countries, these kind of police action columns um, failed everywhere apart from in Kherson region. And so leading up to leading up to April 1st, you had a situation where Russia controlled quite a lot of the country. Basically, everywhere you can see these blue arrows was at some point controlled by Russia. But it wasn't really anywhere close to getting its objectives because obviously... They were kind of in the outskirts of Kiev, but it became evident at this point that um, Ukrainian military resistance would be very serious, and Kiev is obviously an enormous city. And I'm sure reflecting back on, on say, what happened in Aleppo, the Russians would know that even if they could get further and get at Kiev, this is a battle which could take months and months and months and would be something that would be absolutely hammered in the West and would probably very rapidly see kind of the West really pushing the boundaries on, on what they could do uh, to help out Ukraine. And so instead, the Russians withdrew from the north uh, in all these kind of areas in, in the north of the country where you can see these blue arrows and repositioned their forces to these four southern regions going from west to east, well, actually five regions, um, west to east of Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donba uh, Donetsk, Luhansk, and then Kharkov. Um, it's good that we're not live because I, I was like, I didn't quite have anything to do this. Instead of forcing myself to say something, I just stopped. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that it's nice that the pressure is off. Um, and I feel like um, we need to go back and say the pronounce every place name correctly. Like, um, I can't be being like, oh, you know, the airport, whatever, what the fuck, the, the, the one behind the luxury terminal, right? Like, when I flew in that one time to see, um, <laughs> they had to a see Burger King. Right, like, yeah, <laughs> the one with the Burger King. <laughs> you know, you know, did they ever take the Burger King? Um, but, yeah, the um, the police action columns, and this reminded me of the Thunder Run and the Thunder Run mythos 
in uh, the United States that you have a single uh, heavily armed uh, armor column just punching up the highway from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad, meeting little resistance, uh, cauterizing any area where there is uh, fighting um, fierce enough to matter, but just continuing north, arriving and revealing the hollowness of the state that um, no one right. is but obviously there the, to the difference stop. was this column in Iraq had like 500 planes on its side, whilst seemingly there was about one or two in the air on the Russian side any single time. Yes, I, I think that um, there's the difference in the use of uh, air power. There's also the fact that in Iraq, if you can't, if there's a blockage on the highway, just go on the desert, right? It's, um, the terrain is very favorable. Um, finally, the Iraqi population, like the Ukrainian population, had a prior run-in with this enemy. But the nature of that prior run-in was quite different, and the lessons drawn from it were likewise very different. The uh, Iraq, uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and Operation Desert Storm that followed demonstrated that American air power was uh, invincible, untouchable, and that any attempts to f uh, create static defensive lines would um, be an exercise in fatal futility. In the Ukrainians had gotten that memo. The Iraqis had absorbed that message. And uh, what we know now is that uh, the move to um, insurgent style uh, warfare was part of the two, uh, 2003 plan for resistance in Iraq uh, with the understanding, based on the understanding that um, conventional, uh, a conventional type of defense would be suicidal. And obviously this is also now, the American kind of strategy for Ukraine. You can see from the weapons they've supplied in the first weeks of the war, they were supplying man-portable kind of uh, anti-tank missiles. They also anticipated the same thing happening. I think the only people that were kind of uh, disagreed with the narrative were the Ukrainian army. Yes, the um, the Ukrainians hadn't gotten the memo, right? They hadn't had uh, experienced the same form of defeat in. 2014 that the um, Iraqis experienced in um, Desert Storm. And the lesson that they drew wasn't conventional warfare is futile, but rather we're unprepared for conventional warfare. Let's get prepared. And Putin's greatest mistake may have been waiting out the Trump period, hoping for a diplomatic resolution rather than um, taking the opportunity when, to impose his references, his plan for Ukraine um, before any of the NATO training operations or Ukrainian uh, reorganization uh, of its armed forces had, had a chance to bear fruit. Instead, um, it turns out that despite Burisma, despite Ukraine Gate, despite um, all of the visible um, friction and inefficiency in terms of um, the American diplomatic effort in Ukraine uh, and American internal politics uh, around uh, Ukraine-Russia strategy, it, whatever NATO was doing paid off. And you had a more robust and capable conventional force, which meant that you didn't need to switch to um, an exclusively insurgent strategy. Although 
there were elements of um, insurgency that um, Ukrainian defenders were able to quite capably make use of. Yeah. <coughs> For instance, the man portable weapons together with these um, armored columns trying to pour in through um, very clearly visible, very well understood uh, arteries to reach um, strategic points in Ukraine. One guy, man portable weapon, you take out the lead tank, you take out the rear tank, and it's a problem. And that doesn't require retooling for uh, total conventional war. You can do that with your more disposable, um, irregular uh, military formations, like all the Nazis you've got. Uh, they'd be very happy to, uh, to oblige. Um, or you could use uh, special forces um, in order to maximize your chances of success. But that doesn't require the sort of large unit heavy weapons um, training that they received. But that pays off later when um, these become more fixed battles uh, and Ukrainian forces have a chance to entrench after the, the initial um, Russian thrust. Um, when that happens and it becomes clear that um, Russia doesn't have enough forward momentum and enough pressure at the at its point of contact with Ukrainian forces, um, that's when you see the first withdrawal. Um, Ukraine, uh, Kiev will not be taken. We redeploy troops, we move them, and we switch to Plan B, which you know might have been subtitled. Let's face it; we all knew this was going to happen. Um, yeah, and, and I think um, it's it's willing. It's it's important to know at the start of talking about kind of the withdrawal from the north and, and reorientation to the south of Ukraine is that it, from the beginning this started with a change in strategy, where instead of kind of trying to drive up women to be soft targets, Russia basically completely changed changed tact and took up kind of World War One style artillery bombardment to actually absolutely decimate an area and then to gradually and slowly move into these places. Uh, this, this is something which emerged directly out of their initial failures because they'd suffered significant manpower losses and because Ukraine had time to mobilize while they were pissing about in the north and not mobilizing themselves. They ended up very heavily outnumbered and facing the heavily fortified Donbass defense lines, which have been fortified for over eight years, which presumably the initial plan was to avoid, uh, but which because of their ex their failures elsewhere, they were forced to confront head on. Which is not to say that they didn't have a great deal of success here. Um, for instance, the capture of several Donetsk. Mariupol. Yeah, Mariupol. Um, the, the capture of several Donetsk in chance was a, was a well-formed operation, which only took a few weeks to take two major cities. But in how it succeeded, you can see why the strategy was never going to lead to a total victory. Because this slow, slow attack without total air superiority allowed Ukrainian mobile forces to fight hard in these places, but then withdraw without being destroyed. And I think that um, this might be a good place to discuss why Russia hasn't made more use of its total air superiority and why we haven't seen, uh, you discussed the strategic um, or rather the uh, security political aspect of it. You don't want to destroy infrastructure that you anticipate capturing. Um, you also don't want to inflict severe um, civilian casualties on a population that you intend to govern. Um, the There's also an awareness. Uh, since Russian commentators whether on RT, whether on Sputnik, whether uh, in the Russian language domestic media, have been making the same uh, quasi-anti-imperial uh, attacks on American policy. 
namely they destroy all the infrastructure, they kill civilians, look at how bad they are at doing this. Um, there's a sensitivity to having that kind of narrative deployed against you. Um, so for all of those political, economic um, reasons, you avoid the type of um, scorched earth, mass destruction, um, war fighting that Russia was happy to um, exploit in places like Syria and Chechnya. I think my current thesis um, is that Russian, the Russians and the Russian Air Force are genuinely afraid of a NATO response. And so are not willing to face it. I think that is, I think that is absolutely correct. Um, and what we've seen in uh, so far and what was just announced today is a partial mobilization of regular Russian forces for war and the important legal technical redefinition of the conflict in Ukraine from a special military action to a war. Um, for Americans, where war is never declared, it seems to always occur. That may seem like a trivial technicality, but um, when, especially with a country that has had the historical experience of Russia, um, war means universal sacrifice. War means stricter domestic discipline. War is a different phase and style of life. And that's an announcement that people you know are going to die. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both. <laughs>